Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. As I mentioned earlier, our sermon text for this morning will be Philippians 2, verses 1 through 13. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to hear from you. We come to hear your word. We remember the parable of Jesus about the sower and the soils. And so we pray that your word would take deep root in our heart. We pray, Father, that the cares of this world would not choke it out, that persecution would not shrivel it up, but that it would bear fruit in our lives and in the lives of those around us. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would cause your word to do its work this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17 that the church would be one, even as he and the Father are one. Earlier in John, Jesus said that our love for one another would be a sign uh, to the world that we belong to Jesus So Christian unity is a basic part of Christian witness. And yet, the church is often divided. And division in the church is not new. Uh, Paul spoke against division in the church in multiple letters in the New Testament, including uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, as well as the book of Philippians. Division in the church is not new. But perhaps uh, we live in a day, in America at least, when the church's divisions are uh, literally in the news. Now, there are lots of things that divide uh, churches and Christians. There are theological questions, of course. Uh, There are personality conflicts and abuse, sadly. And perhaps more than ever today, social and political issues that seem in some places to be tearing the church apart. 
how can we pursue unity in such a moment as this? Now, it's important to say up front that there are actually different aspects to unity. There are at least three aspects of Christian unity. Uh, first, Christian unity is, is doctrinal. Uh, we share the same faith. We worship the same God. We trust in the same Lord. We share in the same spirit. Uh, th- this, is, this is an agreement, uh, a unity of agreement. Now, this kind of unity in itself is not uniquely Christian, m- meaning uh, other people share a common faith. Uh, Jewish people may be united in their faith. Atheists may be united in their faith. Muslims may be united in their faith. Christian doctrinal unity requires a certain set of beliefs, what Jude calls the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, clearly, this aspect of unity can exist to a greater or lesser degree, and so we strive for greater doctrinal unity with fellow Christians. And yet, at some point, there is disagreement on such core doctrines that it no longer counts as unity at all. Uh, By the way, I think uh, denominations are actually a helpful thing at this point, believe it or not, as they enable Christians to express unity with like-minded brothers and sisters. And uh, we have no reason to believe that that they won't exist until Christ's return, at which point, of course, everyone will be Presbyterian. (laughs) That was a joke. I'm glad you laughed. And so Christian unity is doctrinal. But second, and most foundational, Christian unity is objective. Those who believe in Christ are united to Christ. And so we are joined to one another objectively by the Spirit. Uh, This is a unity that cannot be broken, no matter how hard we try. If we are in Christ, we belong to one another, like it or not. Uh, This is a a uniquely Christian unity. Any other understanding of unity must be built on this foundation. Uh, Finally, though, third, Christian unity is not only doctrinal and objective, it is also practical. Uh, We are called to share a common purpose. And it is this aspect of unity that is so often urged upon us by Paul and so powerfully urged in our present passage. And this unity is important because the fact that we have doctrinal unity and even objective unity does not necessarily mean we're going to get along. It doesn't always lead to harmony in the church. People who share the same doctrine and are united to the same Christ fall out with one another all the time. Unity is a fact that we must rest in, in our union with Christ, but it is also an ideal that we must strive for. And thankfully, God has not left us to figure out on our own how to do this. In this passage, Paul gives us uh, no less than six keys to practical Christian unity. And you can see those uh, in your bulletin. Uh, Begin with grace, look to the model, remember the goal, practice the pattern, hold on to hope, and rely on the Spirit. First, begin with grace. Where does unity, practical unity, come from? Is it something that you have to simply work up in yourself? Uh, Do you just need to work hard enough to get the right feelings about the people around you? 
Is there some emotional appeal that I can give to kind of manipulate and coerce everyone in the room into being nice to one another? Of course, the answer is no. Paul's appeal does not begin with us at all. It begins with grace. Look at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Uh, now, now, what is Paul appealing to here? Uh, what does he mean by encouragement in Christ and, and comfort in love and so on? Paul is, is pointing us to God and his work. Uh, notice the similarity between this verse and uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, I actually use that quite often as the, the benediction. It goes like this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so uh, maybe you can see that, that you see the same, in the same order, you have Christ, love, and fellowship or participation, uh, it's the same word, in the Spirit. And Paul is, is pointing us here in the first verse to the work of Christ, which should encourage us, to the love of the Father, which should comfort us, and the fellowship of the Spirit, all of which flow from the affection and sympathy or compassion of God. God's work in Christ, God's love in Christ, participation in that by the Spirit, all of that, all of which shows God's compassion for sinners, these things are the ground of Paul's exhortation. The, the motive that we have to pursue unity is God's grace. Paul is saying, if God has been gracious to you, if you have come to know the grace of God in the gospel, then Paul says, complete my joy. He's saying, I'm already, I'm already rejoicing in God's work for you and in you. Because of that work, take the next step. And here's the thing, only when God's work is your joy will you be freed up for Christian unity. See, as long as you are seeking joy in something in this present age, everyone else in this age is an obstacle or a rival. But if you want to pursue Christian unity, pursue joy in God and the gospel, seek to delight in the work of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Know his affection and his compassion. And once your joy is grounded in God's grace, you can complete that joy by taking the next step. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to skip ahead for a moment to verses 5 through 11, but I'll come back to 2 through 4, I promise. And I'm skipping ahead because God's grace is both the motive for Christian unity in verse 1, but it's also the model in verses 5 through 11. So first, begin with grace. Second, look to the model. Uh, we look in vain for models of unity in our culture. Uh, many homes are characterized by fighting and divorce, uh, the public sphere is, is polarized with little actual debate, much less unity. In fact, the only kind of unity that we know is unity of agreement. If you, dis if you agree with me, we can get along. If you disagree, you can run along. And this has been shown to be the case by the way, e even in the church, by the way the church has often dealt with COVID. You know, apparently some churches have divided or dissolved because of disagreements about masks. And when the mask issue causes disunity, that shows that the only unity we know of is unity of agreement, the same kind of unity the world knows. We need a different model. 
And Paul gives us that model in Jesus. After exhorting us to unity in verses 2 through 4, and we'll come back to that, Paul says this in verses 5 through 11. Again, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the first thing to notice here is this. For Paul, there is an essential relationship between theology and life, doctrine and practice. Uh, These verses are considered one of the greatest explanations of Christ's person and work in Scripture. But notice why Paul brings it up. He brings Jesus up as a model of the mundane reality of how to get along. Paul is not simply theologizing. He is not being an ivory tower philosopher. He is saying, you want something practical for the Christian life? Here it is, a theology of the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. I had a professor who used to say, all theology is practical. And this passage proves that point better than any other. But that doesn't mean that you can simply meditate on the the theology and move on. In fact, the implication here is this. If you have a well-worked Christology, a doctrine of Christ, but are not striving for Christian unity, you don't understand your Christology. This great Christological passage is here for a practical purpose, not philosophical speculation, but ethical instruction. Now, of course, it is here. The theology, that that theology is for practical purposes does not mean that theology is therefore unimportant. Quite the contrary, theology drives practice. And, and, And psychology has picked up on this, right? Cognitive behavioral therapy teaches that beliefs drive behavior. And if you want to change your behavior, you must change your underlying beliefs, and that's true. In Titus 3, verse 8, after talking about the grace of God in Christ, Paul says this, the saying, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In other words, Paul is saying, teach grace in part so that God's people may do good works. Beliefs drive behavior. Now, what are we actually told about Jesus here? Uh, verse 6 says that Jesus was in the form of God. Uh, That doesn't mean that he was like God, but that he was God. To have the the form of something is to be that thing. That's the language that's being used here. Uh, When verse 7 says Jesus took the form of a servant, it is not saying Jesus became like a servant, but he became a servant. So the fact that he was in the form of God does not mean that he was like God, but that he was God. Well, what does it mean then that that though Jesus was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? 
and, and I'm going to defer to the commentators here because a number of, of great commentators on this passage, F.F. F. Bruce and Peter O'Brien, uh, say this about the, the Greek behind the translation, a thing to be grasped. They say it means this, that Jesus, quote, did not regard his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Uh, maybe we could put it like this, grasped here does not mean strived for as if it were something that Jesus didn't have. It means taken hold of for one's own good. And, and this makes sense, right? When Jesus talked about authority in Mark 10, he said authority is not to be used for one's own advantage. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. Uh, when you are in a position of power or authority, Jesus says that is not something to be used for your own advantage. And so Jesus, being God from all eternity, verse 7, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, God from eternity, became man. He, he made himself nothing. Uh, not meaning, as is sometimes misunderstood, that Jesus somehow ceased to be God. The phrase made himself nothing uh, in the New Testament is always metaphorical, actually. Uh, Paul tells us then how Jesus metaphorically emptied himself in this verse by, verse 7, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not cease to be in the form of God, but he also took to himself the form of a servant. God became man. Again, Peter O'Brien said that the preexistent son regarded equality with God not as excusing him from the task of redemptive suffering and death, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that vocation. And then quoting F.F. F. Bruce, he adds this, not that he exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave, but that he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. See, Jesus did not give up his true nature as God. Rather, he demonstrated his true nature as God by also becoming man. God became man. And we see in that the love of our God. And then verse 8 and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, as a man, Jesus took things a step further. Step one, becoming human, taking to himself humanity. Step two, being humbled, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the shameful death of the cross. And Paul is telling us that the depths that Jesus went to, not looking out for his own interests, verse four, but also to the interests of others. Having taken to himself a body, he bore our sins in his body. Jesus, God from eternity, took on humanity and humbled himself in obedience to the Father to the point of death for us. He did that for his enemies to make peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus humbled himself for our sake to reconcile us to the Father, to restore harmony and unity between God and man. Of course, that's not the end of the story. Uh, the story continues in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father exalted the Son and gave him the name above every name. Uh, now, in Isaiah 45... God says, and we read this earlier as our, as our call to worship, 
In Isaiah 45, God says that He is God and there is no other, and to Him every knee would bow and every tongue swear allegiance. And He invites the nations to turn to Him, the Lord, to be saved. You see what Paul is doing here in Philippians chapter 2. He is telling us that Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh. He is God, there is no other, because to Him every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The God who became man has been exalted and declared to be the Lord, the only God. Now, why is Paul telling us this? He's telling us this because the same mindset that was in this servant-hearted, self-humbling, suffering, and now exalted Savior is to be in us. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What does that look like? Well, it looks like beginning with grace, looking to the model, and third, remembering the goal. Go back to verse 2. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul calls the church to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And his point is not for distinct things. He is simply calling, exhorting, begging the church to pursue unity. But don't misunderstand, right? Paul is not simply saying agree. Uh, The language of the same mind and of one mind might make us think that he is talking about uh, merely talking about doctrinal agreement. While Paul uh, does elsewhere call the church to believe the Christian faith, that's not what he's doing here. He wants them to share in a common purpose, having the the same love and being in full accord or being, being of one soul. He wants them to share a common purpose and not not working at cross purposes with one another, but being single-minded. But Paul does not have in mind just any purpose. Uh, Again, non-Christians can share a common purpose. Uh, People can have a common purpose that, that is mundane or foolish or even evil. So what is this common purpose to which Paul calls us? Well, it's interesting, as as you read through the book of Philippians, this theme of unity does not begin here in Philippians chapter 2. Paul talks about it earlier, uh, specifically in chapter 1, verse 27, where he exhorts the church to stand firm in one spirit, right? Notice the similar language as in chapter 2, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, The goal of unity has an even greater goal, the knowledge of the gospel. Why ought we work hard to pursue unity in the church for the sake of the gospel? This doesn't make it easy, but it does make it clear, right? Christian unity is not just getting along. Lack of arguments in our church doesn't mean that we have any more uh, unity than a church that's divided, any more Christian unity, that is. Christian unity is single-mindedness for the sake of the gospel. But how does, how does that come about? How does unity of mind and heart and purpose come about? What does it look like? How do we pursue unity for the sake of the gospel? This brings us to the fourth point, practice the pattern. Uh, look at verses 3 through 4. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We pursue agreement by putting others first. We pursue unity through humility. And there are two aspects to this. The first is in verse 3. The second is in verse 4. Uh, first, we pursue unity through humility by valuing others. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That is, uh, you, you shouldn't be self-seeking or pursuing what the, the King James Version calls vain glory, empty glory, passing, fading glory. And so is your goal in life to get ahead? Are you pursuing your, your own reputation, your own ends? Don't do that, Paul is saying. But Paul continues, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Th through having a proper view of your own importance or lack thereof, count others as more important. We must value others more highly than we value ourselves. So first, we pursue unity through humility by valuing others. And second, we pursue unity through humility by serving others. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so Paul is saying, who are you concerned about? Whose needs, whose rights, whose freedoms? If you are concerned about your own needs, your own rights, your own freedoms, you are looking to your own interests. And Paul says, look also to the interests of others whom you value more than yourself. See, we pursue unity through humility by valuing others and serving others. And if you, if you do this, it's obvious how it promotes unity. If you put others first and value them more than yourself, others will want to draw near to you and the gospel will be put on display in the church. See, Christ put us first and valued us more than his own life. And when we do the same, the church is unified and the gospel is made visible. Now, what all this means in a practical sense is this, right? If you experience some kind of disunity or disharmony in the church, uh, the first thing to ask is, well, is this, is this doctrinal? And if so, are you disagreeing with heresy? Uh, that is, is this other person denying some basic tenet of the Christian faith? If so, uh, then there is no unity. Uh, you, you don't need to pursue unity. You need to evangelize. You need to share the gospel. But if they are not denying some basic tenet of the Christian faith, then you can believe that there is objective unity. You are both united to Christ and so united to one another in Christ. And based on that objective unity, you can pursue practical unity by humbling yourself, considering them more important than yourself, and putting their interests ahead of your own. Now, just to be clear, putting another's interests ahead of your own does not necessarily mean putting their preferences ahead of your own. That's not what Paul is talking about. It's putting their genuine good, their God-given needs ahead of your own. To put the interests of others ahead of your own is not to be an enabler, but to seek the good of the other even at the expense of your own good. And, and you know, I just pointed out that in one sense, uh, if, if someone is not a believer, there's no objective unity, right? And so you don't pursue un greater unity, you pursue uh, evangelism. Uh, there is a sense in which out of love, we can, we can pursue the good of anyone. And as we do that, that is a part of our witness because we are pointing to the one who pursued us by putting our good ahead of his own. Now, it should be obvious that this isn't easy. 
Uh, It requires self-denial and self-sacrifice. If I am going to value you and serve you more than me, I've got to deny me. I've got to give up sometimes what I hold most dear. Again, go back to the model. The pattern is Jesus who gave his life for us, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, who gave his life by going to the cross, by dying to his will, his pleasure, his comfort for the sake of his enemies in order to make peace. Rather than demanding his rights, he gave his life. That is true humility and the way to practical unity. Why do we find this so difficult? One reason is it it just doesn't sound fun. Uh, In in fact, it sounds the the opposite of fun, unfun. But let me ask this, does does it sound beautiful? When you look at the self-sacrifice of Jesus, is it beautiful? You know, every great movie ever has a character who sacrifices himself for the good of another. It's that moment in the movie where often tears come to your eyes because we know that this person is willing to give up so much out of love for someone else. Self-sacrifice is beautiful. And it's not just beautiful in the movies. It's beautiful in the mundane. Meditate on the cross. See the beauty of Jesus. Let that win over your heart and the difficulty of self-sacrificial love, of unity through humility, will be overshadowed by the beauty of the cross. And and yet there are other difficulties, aren't there? Uh, There's a question that sometimes people ask at this point. What What if I give and serve and put the other first but they do not do the same. Uh, What if I spend my life pursuing unity in this way, but in the church, my brothers and sisters in Christ do not? Doesn't this set me up to, to be taken advantage of? And in one sense, the answer is yes. But this leads us to our fifth point, hold on to hope. Jesus was taken advantage of. He was used as a pawn by the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman political leaders. But he did that for us. And he did that to the point of death. And he did that in hope. And so Paul says in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. How can we practice the pattern of humility if we don't know how the other person respond. I'm not, I'm not talking about if you're in a, a, an abusive relationship. You should obviously get out of that relationship. But in every relationship, every day, right, whether it's in the church or out of the church, how do you, how do you practice the pattern of humility if you don't know how the other person will respond? And the answer is we look to Jesus and remember the promises of God. The scriptures regularly motivate God's people by pointing us to the future and to the reward. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11 to 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What? How is that so? Well, Jesus goes on. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Paul says to to slaves in Colossians 3, 23 to 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord 
you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See, God promises whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We are serving the risen Jesus. If we humble ourselves as he humbled himself, we will be exalted as he has been exalted. Through faith, if we go where he has gone, we will be where he is. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, God may exalt you. Okay, you might be thinking, all right, uh, I think I hear what you're saying, but this is, this is a lot, right? We're, we're at five of six points so far, right? Begin with grace, look to the model, remember the goal, practice the pattern, hold on to hope. How can I possibly do all of these things? How can I do this in the church with other people so different from myself, people I, I didn't necessarily choose, right, but with whom I've been thrown together in this thing Jesus calls his church, How can I do this in my home, right, day to day in the midst of washing dishes and folding laundry and just trying to do life with another human being? And that question, of course, is just another way of pointing out one more difficulty, that this is just hard, right? This is difficult. And so sixth and finally, rely on the Spirit. We often stop reading in this passage before Paul is done speaking, And in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, Paul says this. He says, therefore, right, therefore, based on everything that I've just said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are called to work out only because God first works in. We we can do no good unless God works it in us. The psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, and that his power is made perfect in our weakness. Yes, we we work, right? We pursue unity, right? Seek to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do this, but do it in dependence upon the Spirit, knowing that God is at work in you. And when you stumble and fall, and you will, because it's hard, it's a challenge, we're still sinful, we're still weak, when you stumble and fall, look to Jesus, who did it perfectly for his enemies, who reconciled us to himself through the cross, who who put our need before his own. Remember his work. Be delighted in the gospel. And then take that joy a step further and seek the fruit of the gospel in your life. Jesus made peace with God through the blood of his cross, enabling us to pursue peace with one another to the glory of God and in the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus who did not uh, consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. We thank you that he, he did not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we pray that you would Help us to see the beauty in Jesus and in his self-sacrifice and then help us to take up our cross and follow him. We pray that in this, uh, the world would know that, that we are your disciples and that they would see Jesus and get a glimpse of him and be wooed to him through the work of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.